Thank you so much for joining us tonight on this balmy February night. Was talking with people from Minnesota. It's minus six uh, during the day today. Um, so beautiful there too, but in a different way. And we're glad that you chose to come out and join us for this uh, multi generational conversation uh, about Reconstructionism. So we um, have. A few questions that will be asked of us as the panel, uh, and the panel is uh, Rabbi Stephen Carr Rubin, Rabbi Emeritus of Keilat Israel. And I'm Rabbi Amy Bernstein, and we have our Speech. newest rabbi, Rabbi Nick Renner, joining us as well. So we will be asked some questions, as I understand it, which we will uh, answer, uh, and then um, we want to have time for your questions as well, so you might have written one down already. If you think of a question, you can just write it down and just lift your card, and magically um, someone will come and it will go where it needs to go so that we can hear your questions. Um, you might or might know, Millie might not know, Millie Wexler uh, who is um, doing a wonderful job, along with Lori Krauss, uh, putting together um, engaging adult programming here at KI. So there's all kinds of learning that we want to do as adults. Um, some of it is frontal, some of it's discussion, some of it is workshop-oriented. If you have ideas about what you'd like to see, Lori and Millie are the people uh, to speak to um, as they deal with enrichment. So we like to call it enrichment, that it's there's lots of ways to learn. Uh, and so help us know what it is that you'd like to be about and and they will help make that happen. Really? Well, first of all, thank you so much for allowing us this, this opportunity to hear, you know, in-depth and personal um, from our rabbis because we don't get to hear your own personal opinions that much or, or your own, you know, personal beliefs and, and faith. So um, I'm going to start with the first question, which is for all three of you. Um, tell us how your own personal Jewish journeys led you to Reconstructionist Judaism and Kahilat Israel. We're going this way? <laughs> yes, the privileges of age. Um, speaking of privileges of age, I wanted to say happy birthday to Gene. I missed your birthday, your 90th birthday, right? Happy 90th birthday. Anyway. <clears throat> I'm glad you're here. Um, I grew up in Santa Monica, California, in a family that was affiliated with a reform synagogue, at Beth Shalom at the time, on 19th in California. And um, my parents were um, intellectually reconstructionist. They subscribed to the Reconstructionist magazine. I used to see it on our uh, on our living room table. We used the Reconstructionist Haggadah my whole life till this very day, the same one from 1946 or whatever. Um, my parents refused to update it to the modern version because, you know, that's the one we use, talking about people in the coal mines and all the things that they did in the 1940s. I think we have the same one. Yeah, it's a, it's a classic. And, um, and so I, you know, I grew up knowing about Reconstructionism just as a term and as an idea that my parents always uh, spoke of as kind of the the most intellectual, intellectually authentic version of, of Jewish life, um, from their perspective. And then when I was in my first year of rabbinic school at the Hebrew Union College in, um, in Jerusalem, I had the, uh, remarkable privilege of t- 
taking a class with Mordecai Kaplan, who was uh, only 92 at the time, and still uh, teaching and still the scariest teacher I've ever had at 92. Terrifying guy. Um, and... Um, and that was life transforming, really. Uh, he, he had this class that he taught for uh, students both from the Reform and the Conservative movement who were in Jerusalem at the time. And, um, you know, uh, he said uh, something I, that I never forgot, which was um, at one point in the class, he said one of his favorite uh, Midrashic comments was a quotation from God in the Midrash where God says, would that they would forget me but keep my commandments. And um, it really struck me at the time because it made me realize that, you know, what from Kaplan's perspective and from being a modern religious Jew's perspective, it, it was about what we do, obviously not about what we believe, which is clearly what Reconstruction is about. It's it's the behavior that we have, which uh, which matters. It's how we treat each other. Where we find godliness is in the in between. Um, and he was so powerful about that, and such an amazing contradiction. Anybody who knows about Kaplan knows he was this guy who lived his life as if he was an Orthodox Jew, essentially till the end of his life, in terms of his practice, and had this remarkable intellect that was uh, overpowering and terrifying and. And life transforming. I mean, transformed the American Jewish community. So um, that that solidified my my sense that Reconstructionism was the philosophy that made the most sense within the Jewish world. And then I luckily stumbled into this congregation. I mean, I was ordained in the Reform movement, was working in Temple Judea, and uh, as the associate rabbi, and wanted to have quote my own congregation, and. KI was um, looking for a rabbi and, you know, it just sort of worked out and it was already a Reconstructionist congregation. So it was like stepping into nirvana. Oh boy, I get to be in a existing Reconstructionist community. And so then I could just jump in with both feet and join the rabbinical association and everything else. So that's how I came to it. Thank you. Um... I came to Reconstructionism after I had a pretty severe break with Judaism. I grew up uh, in a home with a father who was raised Orthodox and rejected all of Orthodoxy's strident, you know, this is what you do and you don't ask why and you don't need to understand, you just need to do it. Um, he hated that. He said um, the first time he cut cheder, he cut you know school Jewish school, um, and went to a b- baseball game and ate a treif hot dog, and didn't die. He was done with the whole business. Um, <laughs> my mother was a Jew by choice, raised Southern Baptist in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, she met my father in New York, so. Um, so I came from a family where there was deep Kishke Judaism on my father's side um, and a real attachment to learning and practice on my mother's side, the Jew by choice, who really wanted to do things right and wanted to make sure we were doing what we were supposed to do vis-a-vis the practice. So she, we kept kosher. She had two sets of dishes. And you know, my father would bring in McDonald's 
And my mother would say, you know, you, you can't do that. So, so I had a model early on of there being lots of ways into Judaism and Jewish life and Jewish practice uh, and lots of approaches to it. Um, and grew up in a Jewish day school. They sent me to a private Jewish day school. And then uh, I chose to go on to Yeshiva High School, uh, the Orthodox High School, after, after uh, Hebrew Academy, after I graduated in seventh grade. So, um, so my whole life was a Jewish life. My whole context was a Jewish context, um, except the neighborhood I went home to play in. There were no Jews in my neighborhood in Atlanta. Um, so, so that was all I knew, and I was kind of the poster child at the Orthodox high school for what can happen if you take a child of, you know, and my parents were divorced at the time, take a child of divorce and these interesting circumstances, and I was like on the yearbook committee and played um, basketball and was in the choir and I was just like, you know, this is what can happen for a Jewish child if you give them a Jewish education and um, I was the one um, longing to learn Talmud you know, longing to study more but it was an Orthodox yeshiva and they said we don't teach girls Talmud um, so the boys who were throwing spitballs, you know, at the rabbi got to learn Talmud that, and they hated it um, and I wasn't allowed to learn Talmud. So I was always pushing the margins on wanting more. That shocks me to hear I, that. I know, right? I know. Pushing. <laughs> I was young then. I yes. was young then. <laughs> so, um, right, very much like Yentl. And so it was very hard when at 16 I realized I was gay and came out to myself and knew for a fact that all of that was going to be gone that nothing else about me would matter, nothing about how much I love to learn, how much I love to study, how much I love to play basketball or sing in the choir. None of it was going to matter. The only thing was going to matter that was going to matter was who I uh, loved, and that was going to mean that I was not going to have this community anymore. And um, to, to have that follow, be ripped away, it didn't fall away, it just felt like it was torn from me. And... It meant I, I lost all sense of orientation in the world. My whole life was a Jewish life. And now I knew I had to leave the school, and I had to leave the community, and, um, and it was a huge existential gaping wound that, um, that I carried for a very long time and didn't speak to Judaism all through college. I flirted with it, but then I would be really devastated, and it hurt too much, and um, didn't really find a Judaism I liked all that well. Uh, in at Northwestern, and um, my partner at the time when I was living in Atlanta after I graduated school said that I needed to check out the gay and lesbian synagogue in Atlanta, and I was like, are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Gay and lesbian synagogue, right. <laughs> like, what is that going to look like? What is that going to mean? So, um, but she said, if you don't check it out and you don't go to services, then at the high holidays, you can't whine and you can't complain that you're lonely and you miss it and oh my god oh my god and I it was like not complain it was like alright I'll go you're stupid gay and lesbian whatever whatever um, but I'm not going back I'll go once but I'm not going back so I went and it was a reconstructionist synagogue and the rabbi was an out lesbian who was in full talit and uh, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum who was an amazing, amazing, she is an amazing yes. rabbi, one yeah. of the leaders uh, of this uh, movement in this country. Uh, and she's so charismatic and dynamic and clearly came from a traditional background. And I just could not figure out how she got 
to the bima and how she was up there doing what she was doing from where I was sitting. I knew she'd gone through exactly what I was going through and I could not make those two things come together in my head. Um, and she couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. And so she asked if I, someone knew that I was from a traditional background and said, why don't you go do something? So they gave me a little part in the service and I sang it and she was like, oh my God, you have to stay after services. And she said, um, here's the prayer book. I'll be sending you tapes. This is Rosh Hashanah. She said, Yom Kippur, you're going to be the Chazanit. You're going to be the cantor. For yeah, 10 Yom days. Kippur. And I, 10 days. So, um, and that was how I came to Reconstructionism because it was everything I loved about my traditional background, a real true love of Hebrew, a love of tradition, a love of ritual practice, a seriousness about text study, a seriousness about the steeping oneself in the tradition. Um, and I did not have to leave any part of my brain, heart, or mind, or you know, person at the door to come in and engage fully. Uh, and it was for me the best of all of it. And I, I, to this day, do not understand why it is not the largest movement, um, outside of orthodoxy of, of, of all the Jewish movements, because to me, it is absolutely 100% the best of all of it, um, put together in, in one amazing package. Thank you. Cool. But amazing stories to hear. I, uh, I think I've heard both of those stories before and I love hearing them each time it sort of inspires me and makes me sort of light something up within me that oh this is why I love this and this is why this is an amazing thing to do and thing to be so I uh, I grew up in a Jewish community that was in many ways all over the map uh, between Chapel Hill and Durham North Carolina my dad is, he remains a uh, Methodist, but my mom was pretty much the one who raised me. And she and her parents were uh, Reformed Jewish. Um, that said, through just twists and turns and what community there was locally, we wound up at this conservative synagogue with an Orthodox minion in the basement, and the whole thing was run by a Reconstructionist-trained rabbi. Um, many of you here uh, got the chance to meet my rabbi, Steve Sager, when he was here back in January. Um, this is his shul. And so I grew up in this place, in this, I don't know, wonderful, loving, caring Jewish environment in which, uh, this was North Carolina, again, the whole the trappings and the sort of compartmentalization that sometimes comes with the dynamics of movement wasn't really part of my consciousness. It was sort of that all the Jews were all just sort of there. Um, Again, this is North Carolina. And so years go by. I don't know. I was very involved in learning all through high school, college. Um, I decided I wanted to be a rabbi, and I began looking at different rabbinic programs. And what I saw, I saw a certain kind of model of rabbi in which rabbi is... um, arbiter, in a way, is a legal decision maker, this kind of halachic uh, figure that uh, dictates what is and uh, how one is supposed to be. And that wasn't really the rabbi I grew up with. Now, uh, some of you got to meet Steve. He is... uh, He's more halachic. He's actually, he himself in his practice is probably um, pretty traditional conservative um, in that direction, but... even though that's his sort of observance, his the way in which he approached the rabbinate was different. It wasn't about 
making decisions, dictating halakha, like, you know, issuing legal responsa in this way. It was very much about living this powerful and rich and authentic Jewish life and having that as your experience and then really having that be open, something in which you invite everyone else to be part of the journey with you. Uh, and just like that, you commit yourself to being on the journey with those around you. It was a really different feel to me than uh, rabbi as uh, arbiter in that way. So I went to check out the Reconstructionist College in Philadelphia, and uh, something there for me really clicked. It was uh, it was as if this was the rabbinic training academy that I sort of thought that I had in my mind as like an ideal, and oh, there it was. Just visiting it, it just sort of jumped off the page at me in my life. So uh, very quickly I decided that was where I wanted to be. Another thing that very, very richly, deeply spoke to me, um, it's just a piece of the curriculum, is they actually... I'm going to cite Mordechai Kaplan's uh, idea of what Judaism is. Kaplan famously said, Judaism is the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. I'm going to repeat that because it's a little obtuse. It's the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. And I found this idea of peoplehood and civilization and era and time and history and tradition all sort of tied together into this as an idea to just be incredibly compelling. Um, Going back systematically in my rabbinic training, uh, this is the place from which I, uh, I learned, I received permission to reconstruct Judaism. I found that um, there wasn't some kind of, I, I had ideas in my mind of more traditional sorts of Judaism being more authentic in some way, and I found that that was not true. I found that that was incredibly uh, not true, that this reconstructionist project of living by Jewish values and living a life that is very much in touch and in dialogue with the world and having that inform Judaism and having Judaism inform the ways in which we see the world, that that was actually a really traditional thing. Um, so I chose uh, RRC, the Reconstructionist College, because it was the rabbinic education I wanted. And then probably somewhere in the midpoint, I realized, oh... I'm actually a dedicated reconstructionist. I don't know when that happened, but I suddenly realized that this project, this endeavor of living Judaism in terms of these values, in terms of the tradition, all of these things being in dialogue, that that spoke to me, and that was the Jewish enterprise that I wanted to be a part of. Um, I guess the second part was, how did I wind up at KI? Um, that was almost by accident in some ways. Um, I, uh, I worked for Hillel for four years, which is the Jewish organization on college campuses, and I, that was sort of all I really wanted to do. I, the, the congregational rabbinate as a field, as an endeavor, as an enterprise, wasn't even on my radar. Um, and some folks at the college said, there is a really amazing, amazing community. You should go check it out. So we had a preliminary phone conversation. I talked to Amy. I talked to some folks on a committee, and they agreed to sort of bring me out. I came out with um, a great deal of uh, questioning, wondering, what is this? I had never been to California before, never been to the West Coast before, and here was this community that I knew effectively nothing about. And over the course of a four-day weekend, um, I just fell in love with it. I saw this community as this warm, effusive place in which Judaism was being practiced with open arms and with such love and such compassion, and it was so richly informed by the values that we hold deep. It was all of what I was hearing in the college about this kind of values-based Judaism and letting that inform our faith. And then I saw it in practice, and it blew me away. Uh, I called my wife, Kimmy, midway through this weekend, 
And I said, you know what? If they offer me this job, this is it. This is this is what I want. This is where I want to be. And she was shocked. She's like, but you've never wanted anything to do with a congregational rabbi. I said, doesn't matter. This is the place. Um, that this community, when I came out here, I spent a few days and it just captured me. Um, they did something right. So it was by the end of this like four-day weekend, having come out, come out here, having no idea what this is about, I was totally sold. Um, and I think the feeling was reasonably mutual as I heard back from KI uh, two days later, actually, with an offer for this. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, there's that Yiddish word, um, beshert, that it just um, is right, was how I sort of landed here. People have been asking me what I'm going to do as emeritus. I'm going to become a recruiter. Yes. <laughs> For other synagogues and corporations, obviously. It's brilliant. <laughs> you know, it's actually interesting uh, listening to you because I was thinking about my own um, my own study for the rabbinate and how I also had absolutely no interest in becoming a congregational rabbi. Uh, it was like the it seemed like the stupidest job in the world to be a rabbi. <laughs> what I knew, first of all, I didn't like most of the rabbis I knew, number one. And number two, it was like, who wants to have a job that's 24-7 where, you know, like, everybody is your boss. This like, seems like the dumbest idea in the world. So, um, and I liked the study part. So I mm-hmm. went to rabbinical school because I really was just interested in education and study. I got a master's in education because I thought, you know, that I would go into education. That would be my field. And when I was first ordained, in fact, I that's... What I did originally was I worked in uh, some other movements national office as uh, one of the directors. Shall remain nameless. Remain nameless. One of the directors of education, and um, and the only reason I ended up in a congregation at all was because I was living in New York and couldn't stand the weather anymore and wanted to come back to California. And the only way I could get back to California was to agree to go to this congregation in the valley for a couple of years as their associate. And I figured, okay, well, get me in, back to L.A. and then I'll figure out what I want to do. And, you know, I started in with this congregation, that congregation, and it was sort of like I fell into what I was meant to do. So naturally, when I realized congregations are not about the 24-7 it's about the relationships with people and the opportunity to be so amazingly involved in these most powerful moments in people's lives. It was that I got this sense of privilege so instantly that I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Anyway, that was so not this. Rabbi Rubin. Yes, dear. Following up on what you were saying. So you were ordained by the Reform Yes, I was. College, and yet, interestingly enough, we hear that you were exposed to Reconstructionism early and you were at interested and knew a little bit about it, so to say. But then you came here and you were officially at a Reconstructionist synagogue. Yeah. So what, as, as a religious leader, what adjustments and what paradigms had to be shifted that you suddenly became a Reconstructionist rabbi? And did, what, well, what, if any, were there? You know, the, yeah. it's interesting because when, um, <clears throat> when Rabbi Bernstein a moment ago was saying that she she can't understand why Reconstructionism isn't the largest, you know, movement in the country because it's so obviously the right one. Um, we think you so. know, intellectually, um, it reminded me uh, of what I think is true, which is it, the philosophy of Reconstructionism really is the majority philosophy of the Jews in America. It's and it's really back to the Kaplan thing. You know, Kaplan's ideas. 
of of the idea of a peoplehood and the idea of community and the idea of understanding Judaism as the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people was so powerfully an idea whose time had come that it became the common wisdom of the reform and the conservative movement and therefore the Reconstructionist movement was sort of like going, wait, wait, what about us? Because all those other synagogues from all the, the other major movements that were already in existence, those rabbis, I would say the majority of those rabbis, uh, agreed with Kaplan. And, and the conservative movement certainly claims him as he's the liberal end of, you know, wing of the conservative movement. The reform movement, uh, several times, offered him the position as president of the Hebrew Union College, you know, which he turned down because he had loyalty, you know, for 50 years to JTS. So, so in a sense, you know, and he really never wanted to start a movement either. I mean, it wasn't his idea to start the rabbinical college or start the movement. It was, you know, his students and his son-in-law, um, you know, um, who, who was the movement builder and Kaplan sort of grudgingly went along with it because his ideas were so compelling. And uh, so for me, even though I was trained in, at the Hebrew Union College, um, it, it was, it, it, there wasn't any leap at all. It was settling into what was most comfortable for me, which was a place that actually, um, on purpose, embraced the philosophy of what I saw everybody else embracing sort of under the table and not calling it that. And, and so it wasn't really hard at all. Rabbi Bernstein, you are now serving as senior rabbi of a flagship congregation. How does it feel to be the first woman to do this? And what impact do you think that this is going to have on the future of Judaism? Well, um, I feel remarkably privileged. Uh, I feel incredibly grateful to the generations of men and women um, who had great courage to go before me um, and pave the way. So, um, I mean, I am so aware of how many shoulders I stand on. Um, it's a it's a great day that we can have a woman you know, leading the largest synagogue in a movement. That is a wonderful thing, and we are not near there yet uh, in terms of so many ways that um, we're looking at gender equality in, in the workplace and in American life. Um, so I'm both aware of the strides you know, that we've made and how much there still is to go. Uh, I feel some pressure, <laughs> just a little bit, uh, to, to make sure that I am being the kind of role model and the, the kind of rabbi that, that people can be proud of, you know, whether they're men who have supported women being rabbis or women rabbis. Um, so some pressure, um, real excitement about the time we're living in, real excitement around possibilities and, um, and where we're going, and a sense of um, real energy around, around KI and around the, the future of the movement. So hopefully for Judaism, what it will mean is that uh, women will continue to come to the forefront women's talent and intellect and ideas and spirit have been left behind by, you know, by all religions that have a gender-based, you know, division wherein women are not in positions of power. Um, those movements have suffered, right? And so I'm excited to see um, how much women are bringing to the rabbinate, not because they're, you know, not because it's better, but because 
you, you shouldn't leave half your talent you know, in the back pews or in the balcony. Um, and so I think, you know, Judaism is poised for and is going through actually a real a renewal thanks to some of the, the real energy and, um, and dynamism and, and different perspective that women bring. So. If I can interject a little piece about that. Um, when I went back to the college after interviewing here and was asking about the congregational thing, whether I wanted to do this, they said, well, if you want to be a congregational rabbi, that's a good question, but if you're going to do it, um, and I heard this from a couple of people, deans, former deans, presidents, uh, heads of rabbinic associations who said to me that if you're going to do it, uh, that's the place to do it because you can go out and you will learn from the very best. And they didn't say that she's the best woman. They just said she's the best. So I'm privileged to be here. Rabbi Renner, we were just talking about this also to kind of follow up with that. Um, You can't hear me. Okay. Can you hear me now? Okay. Rabbi Renner. Yes. So apparently the colleges as well, um, undergraduate, graduate schools, have a lot more women than ever, and now there are more women than men. And apparently in rabbinical college. So as a male, you were actually, from what I understand, a minority in rabbinical school now. Tell us about that. And how has that, how will that shift the impact of the future, in your opinion? That's a great question. Um, And it's sort of a fascinating uh, phenomenon to look at in the progressive American uh, Jewish landscape that... um, the majority of the progressive American Jewish leadership in the rabbinical academies is female. I um, I graduated in a small class, actually, from this, the college. Uh, there were folks that skipped up. There were folks that dropped back a little bit. So I wound up being a smaller cohort. I was one of six, and I was the only man in my class graduating. Um, I think the class behind me has two or three guys out of, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 um, it's a very interesting dynamic. It certainly is. Um, what I will say, though, is that I think that, first of all, it brings a very different consciousness in and around uh, Jewish tradition and Jewish history and what voices are part of the conversation, have always been car- part of the conversation, and what voices have not been part of the conversation. And it gives me... Uh, as a man within this context, a certain kind of perspective and I think a, a more intuitive understanding of, oh, there are voices that are missing from this. And what is then my work to do in this field in terms of um, striving for a greater uh, equality, greater egalitarianism in our Jewish practice, in what is Judaism today? Uh, this question of, well, what happens if all of the leadership is female all of a sudden is a really interesting one. And what is the impact then on religious communities? Are men going to somehow feel uh, pushed away from it? Um, and what's the relationship between that and, I don't know, more traditional forms of Judaism that are struggling with um, even the idea of ordaining women? Um, these are all big questions, and does this mean that suddenly men are going to all jump ship to movements that are extremely traditional and halachic? Well, I don't think so. Um, this doesn't look like a monolithically gendered crowd here tonight, um, but it is a really interesting question. I think that in many ways it's going to serve uh, this Jewish endeavor of creating the Judaism of the next hundred years or so um, in terms of enriching the perspective and bringing more voices to the table. You know, this is perhaps 
this whole area is one of the most um, obvious transformations from generation to generation. In my class at the Hebrew Union College, there was one woman, Laura Geller, who was the second woman ordained by the Hebrew Union College in its history. So, because I was ordained in 1976. When I started in 1971, in fact, I looked at the RRC, it had opened its doors in 1968, so, and it was brand new, and it was one of the reasons I didn't go there, even though I liked the philosophy, was because I didn't know if it was going to be around <laughs> five years later uh, to be ordained, and I knew everybody in the reform movement, and I figured I would keep my options open that way. But the whole gender transformation, I mean, look at the difference. She was the only woman watching her in my class, being with her, going through rabbinic school, and what she endured in rabbinic school from the professors who were used to only, you know, boys and no girls in our classes, and the things they would assign her. I mean, it was like, it was, it was unbelievably obvious and sexist with many of the professors in, in, at the college at the time. They would give her the most embarrassing things to read in the Talmud or whatever. It was like, are you crazy? This was like 1970s. But that was, you know, the world that they came out of. And look at the difference. And it's, you know, it's obviously a reflection of the, of the general society. And I think it's obviously not just in the rabbinate. I mean, you know, those gender issues and challenges of, are throughout our society and the questions keep being raised in corporations and other places. What's the impact of a shift from male to female of increases in, in women's voices? How does that affect, you know, male images and, and the images of the professions? And I think it's an ongoing open question that we're going to evolve together. We'll figure it out as we go along. If I can add, there are a couple of other interesting um, sort of frontiers uh, within the rabbinate that are expanding right now. I know that the college this coming year is preparing to graduate their first um, out transgendered rabbi um, this coming year. Uh, I know that there are a couple of students um, who are African-American and some of the challenges they face as student rabbis um, is, again, it's a very new thing to look at and to look at, well, how are they treated or how is somebody who is trans uh, treated in and around the job search or in and around internships and all of these things. I mean, another way in which I was a minority was um, that I, I'm a straight guy, that I'm heterosexual. That was also of minority <laughs> status at RRC as well. Um, so... It's it's very interesting that it there is the gender frontier. There is a great deal of work to be done, and there are additional uh, interesting uh, facets of identity that are being that are unfolding in front of us. Other frontiers within the rabbinate as well. Great, thank you. Um, this is for any of you to answer. So, based on current studies, we're seeing a rapid disaffiliation in the conservative movement, and a, a large increase in reform and even orthodox affiliation. Can you tell us where does Reconstructionism fall in there? Is it growing? What's happening with the movement today? Well, I I hope that we will benefit from some of that. Um, I think we need to, as a movement, be better about marketing the movement. It's been one of our weakest points, I believe, um, from the beginning. Um, we do a lousy job of getting the word out about the movement and about Reconstructionism. Um, the, they need to start with changing the name, yes. um, and that is on the table. Oh, really? Um, you didn't Finally. hear that. Yeah, you didn't hear that here. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, no one knows what that means. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't, it reeking what? Like, you know, nobody even knows what that means. So, you know, 
we need to do a better job of marketing so that the people in the conservative movement who are disaffected um, by I mean, what's happened in the conservative movement is that you've got a movement that's trying to reach people at basically the reconstructionist end and the conservadox end, mm-hmm. and they're doing neither very well. And so it's kind of falling apart as a movement. And we need to be going after the folks who are on, you know, the progressive end of the conservative movement and bring them home to um, reconstructionist Judaism, I think. Um, and um, I'm not sure we're doing it. A great job. You're going to have to talk to that as our regional representative. <laughs> I've actually been doing some consulting for the uh, for the Reconstructors Movement this year um, since I became emeritus um, a, a few More times, time. <laughs> a couple times, and um, you know, it's there's interest. I mean, there is. I was in Me- <laughs> I was in Mexico talking to a congregation uh, in Salt Lake City talking to a people there. There is interest because of the the obvious sort of intellectual um, interest in anyone who's looking for something that they can they can live that is consistent with being a modern contemporary you know uh, American Jew. Um, and we're growing, but we're just so small that it doesn't have that big of an impact because we start out so small. Uh, and I, I agree with, with Amy 100%. Didi and I, for 28 years, were pushing, the, kept sending notes to the movement saying, we need a name that movement contest every year. <laughs> but they, uh, it's slowly getting around to it. You know, and, and I agree. It, it's, it's, you know, every time you say the word reconstructionism to someone, it's like, their eyes glaze over, right. and they go, "Are you in the building? You're building a new building? Is that what you're doing?" The you know? South after the it's Civil like, War, you know, something after the Civil War in the South. I mean, it's like, it's just like, it's so it doesn't connect with anybody's ideas of anything that it's the biggest. I think it's actually the single biggest barrier to people saying this is not what I am because it doesn't mean anything to say this is what you are. So, oh. Go ahead, you. I, I would just speak kind of anecdotally about this dynamic you're referring to. Um, so when I was in rabbinical school, you spend a year in Israel, and all the rabbinical students, it seems like, in Jerusalem all get to know one another from all the different movements. And there's a new rabbinical school called Yeshivat Chovavei Torah, and they're actually a new movement. They are calling themselves Open Orthodox. Um, which is a very interesting sort of dynamic between them and sort of modern orthodox. And it's an interesting uh, set of conversations going on. But what was striking to me was that all of those guys who I was meeting who were going to this, because they, they only ordain men, um, they all grew up uh, going to conservative day schools and conservative camps. And they, when they would tell me their story, they talked about really seeing themselves as um, obligated by halakha, by Jewish law, by all of that. And they looked over and they saw conservative Jews like me growing up, who I was in this movement that said it was halachic, but I never, I never experienced Judaism as legal system in the same way. I just never saw that as my identity. So they, they looked over and saw me on the other end and they said, okay, well, clearly we've got to find something else um, that speaks to us, which is a very interesting thing to see. I even saw some of that um, working for Hillel, actually, with college students who grew up um, in the conservative movement and we're sort of seeing themselves they're, they're not sure where they see themselves but they don't they aren't necessarily seeing themselves there whether it was something that is closer to that open orthodox and that whole new movement with all of its energy or reconstructionist reform or something that's just sort of blanket progressive um, there are a lot of people who are looking right now and I think that uh, we do have a lot of compelling answers for folks who are looking so a personal question for all of you 
even though you're all rabbis, you're individuals, and you have your own personal beliefs. Can you share with us a glimpse of your own personal faith and, and as how it relates to, perhaps, prayer, your vision of God, and afterlife? In 20 seconds or less? No, not 20 seconds or less. But just give us sure. a glimpse. Uh, you know, this morning I got up, and um, on uh, my balcony, our balcony, we have a um, seated elliptical machine. It's a great piece of machinery, by the way. Seated elliptical <laughs> machine. So I go there um, every morning and it's, get some exercise. And, and my regular ritual now is I go out to the uh, seated elliptical machine. I get on the seated elliptical machine. I start doing it. And <clears throat> accompanying that is a series of morning prayers that I say that are the traditional morning prayers. One says, Modani lefanecha, and give thanks to God for waking up and getting my soul back and talking about my body and and gratitude for my body, particularly as I'm there making it work and move. <laughs> and I'm grateful that it's able to work and move and I can actually get on that machine and, you know, and do the things you're supposed to do with it. And I'm very conscious of that in particular every morning when I'm sitting on the machine and, and I go through the... Uh, several other traditional morning prayers. Uh, not because I think that there's a supernatural being that, <clears throat> who's listening to me say those words, but because in saying those words, in uttering those prayers, I am connecting on several different levels at the same time. I'm connecting with a sense of the transcendent in the world. I'm connecting with a sense of of gratitude, all the things I'm grateful for from the most physical of my body that works to the most spiritual that I have someone to love and who loves me and, uh, and meaning in my life. And all that's triggered by the utterance of those prayers. At the same time, uh, those saying those words that Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam and fill in the blank. And there's a whole bunch of them that I say in the morning connects me to thousands of years of Jewish community and civilization and all those Jews regardless of their labels and whatever they called themselves, wherever they lived in the world and whatever the other languages they spoke, that when they heard the words Baruch Atah Adonai, they said, oh, it's a Jewish something. It's a Jewish prayer about something. And to me, it's that's the, the power of that and the meaning of that. It's not the literalness of what the words happen to say, although when I'm meditating as I am on the words as I'm saying them, part of my personal spiritual challenge is to find some new meaning in it every time I say them, to let my mind connect somewhere to my life, to my community, to my relationships, to my goals, to things I want to accomplish in the world. And, and all of that to me is this the sort of stuff of my spiritual life, my personal spiritual life, um, as opposed to my communal spiritual life, which happens to be symbolized by everybody here and in this room. Um, and the and the importance of that, I mean, that's the one thing I've missed over the last six months or so, is my communal spiritual life. You know, I've been traveling and so avoiding it, but the fact of the matter is, I feel like I'm home when I'm my other home when I'm in here and, you know, seeing the people that I see that I miss when I'm not here. And, you know, that and that's a, as important, uh, having a community, 
having a sense of connection, having a sense of community to me personally as, as anything. And it's, you know, and it has nothing to do with the, with the literalness of any of the language. It's the power of the richness of being a part of something bigger than myself. That's the Jewish world in which I feel privileged to be, to belong that, that inspires me. Um, if I start talking about the afterlife, it'll be a whole nother conversation. So maybe we should just do that part first, you know. But I'm happy to do that too. Um, since, Thank you. Uh, first of all, so you're, so you're, clearly you're retired. Yes. I get up in the morning. I know. Do you like that? <laughs> I get up when I go. Whenever I want, I get up in the morning whenever I want. <laughs> so, um, I've always had language for God. I've always had language with which to talk to God. I've always had an awareness of God because that was cultivated in my daily life. Um, it was modeled for me by rabbis and teachers. It was, we prayed every morning when I went to school. We said the Pledge of Allegiance on the yard, lined up um, before we went into school. And then we opened our prayer books and we davened at our desks as a class every morning. Um, and we took turns leading the davening. And so, like, I don't remember a time where I wasn't in constant conversation with God. What that word means has changed, obviously, over time from that real, you know, um, concrete idea as a child, you know, of something, somebody that listens and hears and does or doesn't respond um, to a much different idea. Um, and so when some people hear my ideas when we really get pushed about what do we think about God or what is it or what is it not and I say I don't think God is a being right there there isn't a being that listens and responds I don't believe that um, because if that's so I want nothing to do with that being because it was nowhere to be found in the killing fields or at Auschwitz or when an eight-year-old is you know sexually molested by their parent then where's God right so I don't have a God who hears and then answers and intervenes and yet, I 100% choose the word God to talk about the experience of connecting through myself and relationship with other people, through my own cells and my own mind and my own heart to nature and the cosmos and the whole grand idea of consciousness being in human form. Wow, like, right? So my whole relationship to the awe and wonder of that, the mystery of connecting with other human beings and the magic that happens there with animals, with all of it to me is God. And so some people say to me, so why do you use that word? That's not really God that you're talking about. That's like connection, energy. Like, why do you choose to use the word God? And it's an, it's an excellent question. And for me, the reason I choose to use the word God is because I choose to sacralize that experience. I choose sacred language on purpose. Yes, I know it's an energy or a connection that's just in my brain or, or whatever. That's fine. That reducing it scientifically to how it happens is not interesting to me other than the science. That's interesting, but it's not useful past science. The language of religion, the language of poetry is, the relig- is a language for what is ineffable. The part of it we can't really describe. The part beyond our ability to understand and really apprehend. And I want to sacralize that mystery. I want to make it holy. 
because otherwise we don't take it seriously enough. And what else are you going to make holy? And and when we do that, and when we really take it that seriously, that it becomes sacred, um, I believe it informs how we live our lives, how we treat each other, the decisions that we make, and all of that, building communities like this, building real relationship, feeling compelled to protect the planet, feeling compelled to act ethically and morally in consumption, you know, in business, in all those things, that impacts the world. That changes the world. And if we really took it seriously and lived our lives in light of the awe and wonder and grand um, sense of gratitude for all of this, I think we would act differently. Um, and so I don't argue that, that mine is not, is not necessarily what people would call God. And I think it's really important that we reclaim that word and we reclaim that term and that we use it proudly and liberally to talk about what we think can make this world uh, a better place. Thank you. Rabbi Renner? Yeah. So, (laughs) I imagine some of you have heard me teach this before. Um, The rabbis say that you should recite 100 blessings a day, 100 brachot a day. Um, The formulation is a beautiful and it's a powerful and meaningful one. This formulation, Rabbi Rubin uh, mentioned, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, fill in the suffix. Um, but I actually don't think that this is an injunction from the rabbis to say one, that formulation 100 times during your day. It is, I believe, an injunction to be aware of the ways in which you are blessed 100 times per day. It is an awareness of the divinity um, of that which is sacred and that which is holy that suffuses through all of what we do, all of what we experience, all of what we hear, all of what we see. I remember I used to think about uh, that particular construct when I was in rabbinical school and I'd be crossing this bridge, driving to school on these bitter winter mornings. And I could see the, the sun just coming up over this, uh, this sort of park, this forest, peeking through these trees with all of this orange and red and all of these vibrant colors in this bitter cold morning, crossing this bridge at some horrible hour to go to school. And I thought, well, there's a moment of it. There's one of those hundred moments. Um, and I find that I am more spiritually healthy, more spiritually uplifted. The more I am in tune with those moments, the more I cultivate an awareness of all of the blessing, all of these little fleeting glimpses of that which I understand and experience to be divine in my life. Um, Rabbi Sager uh, talked at RRC at one point about prayer, and one thing he said that stuck with me is he was informing us, he was telling us rabbinical students to uh, pray playfully, and play prayerfully. That one should, I'll repeat it again, to pray playfully and to pray, to play prayerfully. Try saying that three times fast. <clears throat> Better not. Um, can't say it twice. Um, and I think that's actually saying the same thing, that there is a certain kind of awareness of bringing prayer and bringing divinity into uh, that which is mundane, that which is everyday, and having a certain kind of awareness of that suffusing all of it, all of what's fun or what's beautiful or what's cool or whatever. It's a certain kind of awareness that there are glimpses of divinity in that. And then even in those moments uh, that do not seem to be that of prayer, um, if I'm playing with a band and they give me 12 bars to carve out whatever kind of solo I will, I'm going to play something. I don't know what I'm going to play, but whatever comes out, that to me feels... Um, 
pulley in some way. That to me feels like some kind of conduit. That to me feels like uh, playing prayerfully and praying playfully. Um, I think it's just another way of expressing that. Did it three times. No, the second didn't count. But, um, and the last thing I would say, and this sort of is, this goes to how I feel about Torah and what I think about Torah, actually. Um, we talked some in my Saturday, in our Saturday morning Torah study class about, uh, you know, the historicity of this. What does it literally mean or literally about? And that question to me, you know, you can go back and look at the archaeology and look at the sources and look at the, uh, the fields of biblical criticism and all of that. But I, what I actually think Torah is, is this story of my people's relationship with, uh, divinity. Uh, this was a point at which people tried in some way to capture that which was, uh, they were unable to capture. And this is the form it took. This is the shape it took. This is the lens through which we are looking at that which uh, we understand to be divine. And the cool thing is that that, to me, has been an unfolding project. The Torah did not just get uh, finished at a certain point and then we moved on from it. No, we have all of these other sources, all of these other texts. We have all of these interpretations. We have um, people who got excommunicated for having all kinds of radical ideas about all of this tradition all through the ages. Um, And all of that, to me, is this same piece of some kind of living sense of that which is divine. Um, And so I see what we're doing here when we all gather around to tell uh, these, you know, sacred stories of the Talmud or when I'm, you know, playing music with a bar bat mitzvah student, when we're here teaching or leading or, you know, being rabbis in some capacity, that's all... it, all of that is what it feels like and means to me to be present with divinity in that way. You know, uh, I probably said this a million times, but <clears throat> to me, God isn't something that I believe in. Uh, God is something that I experience. You know, to me, it's something that I experience in what we're always calling the everyday miracles of life. Uh, and that's what I think is authentically reconstructionist, but also it grounds me in, you know, what you were saying about transforming, holding our experiences as sacred and, and our relationships and using the term God on purpose so that it, we don't cede it to those who are the most right-wing traditional orthodox and say that that's the only way we can use that word and any other way we use that term is somehow inauthentic because in fact we're just as authentic as anybody else that uses it and and by infusing it and holding it in a certain way we help transform and, and liberate people from feeling that they, that's the only way they can see God and therefore they can't talk about anything spiritual because it's not that. Uh, and to your other question, really, you know, th- there was a famous uh, early 20th century evangelical preacher who once said, I'd rather live in a world surrounded by mystery than a world so small my mind could comprehend it. And I love that, you know. I wish he was Jewish, the guy who said it, but he wasn't. <laughs> he was a Christian evangelical preacher, but I, I loved it because, you know, I think that too. You know, I, I'm humble enough to say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's so many things I don't know about. Um, and we spend a lot of our time dealing with death. Death and dying and funerals and grief and, and wrestling with 
with the pain of loss and the horror of horrible losses and the tragedies and and the people who ask questions that we don't have the answers to that nobody has the answer to and they're still asking the same questions they've been asking as long as they've been human beings because we're all part of the same with the same and we you know we experience the same tragedies and the same grief and the same sense of loss and the same mystery and the same wondering um, and part of I think of what's being authentic is to recognize and accept what we don't know and to say there are things that are, you know, this world that are, I don't know about. And and I'm willing to, to be open to whatever may happen. I don't know what happens when people die. Um, I, I experience life as being more than just the physical. I think for sure we live in where we where life really matters is not the physical, it's in the spiritual, which is in our relationships. And those uh, are not... Uh, limited to the number of our years on the planet. Uh, our relationships go on f- forever, so there's certainly an afterlife in that. My Thank favorite you. reference to the afterlife or explanation is, uh, is Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who talks about um, all of it being ocean, and then if you look at the ocean, there's this wave that comes up and has its arc and its trajectory and its um, travel through time and space, and then crashes on the beach and nobody says oh my god what happened to the to the wave right you, if we someone were to ask you if a little kid asked you what happened to the wave what would you say it went back to being ocean and so for me it's one of the most comforting um answers that includes a really huge i don't know mm-hmm. like none of us know um but what i do truly truly trust is that this is all ocean and I'm doing the Amy Bernstein wave um, right now, and when that's done, I I go back to being ocean, and I have no clue what that means, and no clue what that is, um, but I do have a deep, deep trust that I will fall back into the, you know, the cosmic unity of it all in some way, um, and when my father died was the first time I really had to test that. Did I really trust that? Um, and and I can say that I do. Thank you. It's very interesting. Um, we have one last question before we open it up to potentially a few questions from our congregation. So um, a little bit about what we were talking about, but what part of Reconstructionism, uniquely Reconstructionism, really resonates with your own personal beliefs? Um, for me, it's simply the emphasis on community, on belonging, that uh, that what gives Jews our sense of identity is, is belonging rather than belief. That, um, you know, when... When I work with, when any of us work with people who choose to become Jewish and um, who are raised with something else, the, so often the the power of belonging, the searching to belong to something bigger than oneself, and then finding it here in our in this and what Judaism and Jewish civilization is all about, um, is so is such a powerful reality. That it's uh, more than any individual ritual or custom or tradition or you know or belief uh, from the vast thousands of years of Jewish thought, uh, and it's the one consistent 
see for me throughout thousands of years of Jewish civilization is that sense of community and belonging to community and having trust and faith that it'll be okay that whatever Judaism becomes will be okay because it's going to naturally evolve out of the needs of the Jewish community and whatever that may be the emergence of of the women's voices, the acceptance of of a whole range of of definitions of what it is to be a Jew that naturally has grown out of the reality of Jewish community, and, and to me that's the most powerful. And I, I would say belonging, definitely, um, peoplehood, definitely backwards in time and forward in time that I can locate myself as part of a people that's been around for thousands of years and God willing will be for thousands of years helps me hold my own little tiny lifetime in kind of some perspective um, and the other thing I, uniquely about reconstructionism is it honors celebrates says honestly and openly that it's evolving and that it's always evolved. That's how we've survived. Those who want to say the only way we've survived is by conserving, right, and not changing, that is, if you look at Jewish history, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. The only way we have survived is because we have met the modern time, whatever it was, wherever we were living, and we have adapted our own spiritual and, um, and peoplehood to meet it and to have Judaism evolve and change to meet whatever the needs of the time um, were and are and, and will continue uh, in the future. So ev- evolving, peoplehood, belonging, backward and forward, and without needing to say in any way that someone else's way of doing it is somehow less than ours. If the rest of this world could get to that place, we would have peace on earth, Amen. right? That we can be proud of who we are. We can be really immersed in the way we do it and the way we see it and the way we talk about it as Jews and the way other peoples do it is their way to do it. And it's inherently um, an, a, a practice of integrity for that people and its evolution um, through, through time. So I really am very proud of our movement for being so clearly non-stagnant. Um, and non-egocentric to say that ours is the best way to do things. So there's an idea that you hear sometimes um, from folks who are either militantly uh, secular or religious, this idea that uh, to be fully within Judaism is to reject the West, to reject being American, to reject all of what it means to live in our actual living, breathing communities. And then there's this idea that, you know, to be fully rational and American and all of that, um, you should get rid of these silly superstitions and all of this. Um, Reconstructionist Judaism says that is not true. Mordechai Kaplan said, we live in two civilizations. We live in Jewish civilization, in the richness of all of that tradition, all of that consciousness, all of what that gives us theologically, religiously, uh, culturally, all of what that means. And we also live in all of these communities all over the world. It's the reason Judaism has become so rich by being practiced all over the world, rather than somehow being diluted or being diminished from having existed in so many different places in so many different times. Um, in the Talmud, there's a formulation that says, Elu ve'ilu, says these and those are the words of the living God um, it's an idea that speaks to a certain kind of a contradiction that actually you can have a contradiction in terms like that and it can still be all the words of the living God and I believe that Reconstructionist Judaism addresses that and captures that uh, more powerfully than anything else I've encountered thank you we have questions Julia or 
Anyone fill out cards? You guys want to talk them out? All right. Julia's got the microphone. Hi, I'm from New York. I'm just visiting, and I want to thank you. This was just wonderful. Welcome to our weather. Welcome. I'm I'm so very impressed with all of you, and I'm jealous, I mean, that I have to go home and not be a part of this. But very specifically, I still don't know what distinguishes your services, your synagogue, from others because you evolve? I'm not quite sure how this practically shows itself, this difference. So it, it, it isn't necessarily the place you see the difference is walking into our services. That's not the place you would feel necessarily a big difference between Reconstructionism and lots of other kind of progressive Judaism. You have to dig deeper to get to what makes us different, what feels different, but it's not at a Friday night service. So there isn't an answer to say what distinguishes us on Friday night from another shul. Nothing. But open our prayer book. Spend some time in our prayer book and you'll see, I think, what differentiates us. Although the reform movement copied our prayer book and called it Mishkan Tefillah. Um, Seriously, they took exactly what we did with the prayer book commission and they took the old gates of prayer and they made their new prayer book and it's so much like Kol Um But if you look at Kol Shema, the way it, it gives you transliteration so you can sing along if you don't read Hebrew, English, alternative stuff below the line, um, teachings below the line, poetry below the line that's to the theme of that liturgy. It's, it's a, a richness of tradition and, and contemporary thought and expression um, that is honest about bringing those t- to be on the same page. Um, in a way that, that hasn't happened in other movements, but, or that, that didn't happen as early in other movements as it did within, um, within Reconstructionism. No, you know, the, part of the, the, the difficulty in, in responding to the question, which I get all the time because people know that I uh, was ordained in the Reform Movement, is what's the difference between Reform and Reconstructionism, is that um, much of it is hidden in process. That is, the process through which decisions are made uh, have been fundamentally different in the Reconstructionist movement than in any other movement. The the communal egalitarian nature of decision-making process traditionally in Reconstructionist congregations and movement are not the same as would happen in a typical reform synagogue or typical conservative synagogue where the locus of authority for making decisions is different, is with the rabbi, perhaps, uh, as opposed to the congregation and the community in which the rabbi has one uh, hopefully loud and powerful voice, but one voice among many. Uh, and, and the prayer book, in fact, is a is a perfect example because in the Reconstructionist prayer book process of how it got to come into being was the creation of a prayer book commission that was self-consciously composed of equally rabbis and non-rabbis, men and women, to be uh, to create an inclusive, thoughtful commission that then made these decisions as opposed to uh, all the reform congreg- uh, prayer books 
historically that were made by the rabbis because that was considered to be what's what rabbis do. So the rabbis, the CCAR, the rabbinical association, would you know create its own prayer books. The so that's sort of fundamental to where the differences go. It may look the same when you show up, and as you know, Rabbi Bernstein said, come to a service, one synagogue or another. You may not know whether it's a reform synagogue or a reconstruction synagogue unless you look at the prayer book, and they happens to be our prayer book. But uh, uh, it's how we got there, and it's then in the very sort of foundation of of how the community functions that there's a difference. The only thing I would uh, contribute to all of this, which I agree with, is that um, functionally the Reconstructionist movement doesn't have a central decision-making body quite in the same way that, uh, say, the conservative movement has the Committee of Law and Standards. So there isn't quite the same centralization of doctrine uh, in that way. And what that means is that, on one hand, you could walk into two Reconstructionist synagogues, and they can look radically different. Some of the Reconstructionist synagogues I saw in Philadelphia look and feel very different than this community. The flip side of that, though, is that the reason those communities look and feel that way is because of the community. The, the prayer, the, the appearance of it, the way in which it feels to be there in community reflects that community, um, learning, living together, working out what Judaism is going to look like locally in a way that's very organic, um, if not somewhat decentralized. So that's another piece of that. All right. Um, this is kind of a multi-question. <laughs> um, was I correct in hearing you say that there is a movement to change the name of Reconstructionism? <laughs> yes. Okay. No. <laughs> would you would you care to share the, some of those names with us? The other part. Oh, is it a secret? Don't there me. aren't any official. Uh, there's just been discussion that that's probably the next big thing we need to tackle is looking at the name that it keeps us back and it's not helping us at all oh so something something like and i'm not saying this is even out there but like i would imagine something like in israel all all of the synagogues are called are part of the impj the israel movement for progressive judaism so you're just one of the impj synagogues it's not a Movement. It's just all the progressive synagogues. And so I would love to see something like the American Movement for Progressive Judaism. And let's just call it what it is. And Okay, that, that's... Something the, like that. That's an, the other part of my question. It is an American movement. Yes. Yes. Okay. Is, has there been any attempt to spread it to the rest of the world? So some Reconstructionist thinking is that it doesn't need to spread to the rest of the world because it is organically American and it is meant to be American. Uh, the ideals of Kaplan in terms of how people could live in their civilization and the Jewish civilization, those could be exported. Um, and some folks, like in Hungary, when we were visiting Hungary, there was there's a Reconstructionist Chavara uh, in uh, in uh, Hungary. So when we were in Budapest, it was wonderful to meet with them. And kind of, I was like, oh, wait, 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 like Reconstructionist living in two civilizations, the American civilization and the Jewish civilization. How does that work in Hungary? Um, but wait, so obviously they're taking the I, the ideals of Reconstructionism and and translating them mm-hmm. into their own uh, experience. There are Reconstructionist rabbis who are living and working as Reconstructionists and teaching 
as Reconstruction rabbis in other countries in the world, in Germany and Israel and places like that. So in that sense, spreading the ideals of Reconstructionism, but it either is going to grow organically or it won't in other places. Sorry, Barbara. Thank you. First, I want to, it was a terrific presentation and I loved it. And uh, thank you. Thanks, George. (laughs) Yes. Uh, My question really has to do with the words in the prayers and the meaning it has uh, for people. Uh, And I'll give you a specific example of my own. Uh, Many years ago when my uh, wife died, uh, shortly thereafter it was Rosh Hashanah and I came hoping that it would help me. And instead where it says in the book of life and if you're good you go in the book of life and I started crying. Uh, and so the inconsistency is the question that I'm raising, and I don't know what can be done about it. I, I think the point of that prayer was to make you cry. <laughs> no, I'm actually being serious. That that that's part of the. It's not. It's not so much a comfort uh, that yes, it's filled with inconsistencies. Either we throw it all out and we go, okay, we're just going to write new prayers every year for ourselves where we are, or we keep as much of the tradition as we can live with, and we can reimagine and we can revalue, as Kaplan used to say, and as we can personally and communally connect with in different ways every year. You read those same words, and it may be that you react differently to it one year as you do the next year, certainly for me, you know. Part of the value of those words is what I said before of the Baruch HaTah Adonai. I don't believe that either. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe. King of the universe. King of the universe. Baruch HaTah Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam. If I, if I read it literally, I go, well, I don't believe that. But that's not what I experience when I say Baruch HaTah Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam. I experience a Jewish prayer going back thousands of years that I'm now a part of and I reinterpret it in my own way that's meaningful to me while while loving the fact that it connects me to thousands of years of Jewish civilization. And, and that's the only way I, I can deal with it. And some of the things, you know, just don't work. Well, that's right. I, I agree with the work. That's good. That's tradition. It's wonderful. The... Uh, the issue here was that I interpreted then that there was a reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I understand. That as opposed to going back into the ocean, which is a wonderful uh, analogy. And, and so that's a really important part of who's interpreting the prayers, I think, which is one of the reasons I wanted to be a rabbi, was because I heard those words too sometimes after coming out and or whatever, even other times. You know, and it's like, wait, what? Like, you know, and crying. And... So it's very important to have some community where it's understood that we are revaluing those words. That the book of life means we don't know what's coming in the next year. Rosh Hashanah is about the next year, not the past one. It's about, I don't know what's coming. And we don't say, if you're good, you go in that book. That is not what we say. We say, I'd like to be written in the book of life. I don't know what's going to happen. That might not happen. Right? So... And then how do we, how do we hold a real awareness of the fragility of life 
and the briefness of it, and therefore how sacred it is, and how important how we behave with each other is. That's what the high holidays are about. Was there a theology that said if you were good, you'd live another year? Yeah, but people at 97 probably didn't totally buy that either, right? So they, we've always lived with the understanding that it's metaphor, and that we either have to chuck the metaphor like Stephen said, and start all over again and just write what we believe this year. But who would write that? Who's going to write that, that all of us are going to relate to in any way or agree with, right? So we kind of all agree we're going to reconstruct it, not demolish it. If you take that part of the holiday liturgy literally, then everybody who dies, every time they die, is somehow didn't get written in the book of life because of something. So obviously it doesn't work to take it literally because then everybody's somehow like guilty of something. The fact of the matter is my favorite Mordecai Kaplan quote of all time. Want some more water? She's allergic to me. My favorite Mordecai (coughs) Kaplan quote of all time is that he once said that the greatest challenge of the modern Jew is to learn how to take the Torah seriously without having to take it literally. That is what we're all about. That is why we're doing what we are doing, we rabbis for sure, is to help learn how to take the Torah seriously. Torah meaning in this broadest sense, liturgy, prayers, Jewish history, Jewish thought, seriously without having to take it literally because when we any of us who take it literally are slapped in the face with things that we simply can't accept. You know, because somebody wrote all this stuff. That's the point. It, it, either you believe it dropped from heaven, literally, because from some supernatural being, or you say, oh, somebody wrote this stuff, all of it, all of your ritual, all the prayers, all the Torah, all the sacred literature. Somebody like you or me, smarter maybe than me, but wrote it. Some human being wrote this stuff in their attempt at trying to create a sense of the sacred and bring it into our lives and have meaning and purpose and connection and community. And when you see all of the sacred literature of the Jewish people that way, then you don't get hung up in the literalness of any of this stuff. Like that particular piece, um, a lot of that's medieval. A lot of that particular piece of liturgy, the Yom Kippur piece and whatever, comes out of uh, a medieval place in which uh, Jewish existence was fragile, as you said. It, it's in many ways a mechanism to try and deal with the fragility and some of the brutality that people experienced. Uh, and when I think about that, I think, well, actually, that I can relate to. I may not relate to this theology that they use to try and get around it, but I can be very present with the fragility that they experience and with some of the brutality that they saw in the world. Um, that makes That's something that does speak to me. Amy. You are in a man's world in terms of the Torah and all the interpretations of the Torah. What's it like? And do you pick up on the maleness of what has been written? Um, Yeah, to be a woman outside the home is to be in a man's world. Every time we leave the house, we're in a man's world. And... So then it's a question of how far do you want to go, right? And so lots of people said to me, how could you become an expert at a patriarchal tradition? You, a feminist, like what, why? And why would you want to steep yourself in patriarchy like that? And so, um, so yes, I'm, I absolutely see 100% um, the maleness and, and the, the ways that it's an expression of 
Um, definitely a patriarchal outlook um, and, and the interpretations through the centuries as well. Um, I feel really lucky to be part of the time when we women are taken seriously in doing that too. Um, it doesn't tend to bother me that it's historically been male because mo- most of it ha- most of anything has tr- traditionally been males. We were relegated to the private world and men were in the public realm and if you weren't cooking or run, you know, cleaning snotty noses, you were in the male world and um, I just feel really lucky that we're able to to bring a, a woman's perspective, what, you know, in the ways that that's different um, and and to help women's voices that have always been, as you said, you know, part of this, Rabbi Renner said, as part of the conversation. Now they're out there as part of the conversation. And that just feels like a really important contribution to make us to have everybody's voice um, engaged. And and how wonderful that I get to be part of that. I think we just have I, room I just for want one to say more that question. I, that I grew up with three sisters, and I never mm-hmm. thought anything was a man's word. <laughs> So I think this is the last question before we close. If yes, I think so. It's okay with you. The word community has been used throughout this evening. What is your definition of community? Thank you for that, Harry. It's like stump the band. <laughs> uh, uh, wow. Um, I understand community as um, people in relationship uh, who feel a sense of responsibility for one another's well-being, and in this case, one another's physical and emotional and spiritual well-being. To me, that's what a Jewish community is, a sense of, of feeling not just connected to each other, but literally responsible for the the spiritual, emotional, and physical health and well-being of one another um, in relationship. Um, for me, it's the absolute gorgeousness of feeling responsibility for people I don't know. Um, being truly in relationship to community means, um, first of all, I'm accepted because I'm here. Just because I'm here. Which is what I love about Bar and Bat Mitzvah. You know, when our kids come into the community as adults, um, they're, you know, they're being welcomed into the community not because they passed a test, not because they got a good grade, not because, you know, their project was the best, um, not because they ran the fastest. They're there and they're accepted by the community because they're ours. Um, and, that is so powerful to me because the, the, the flip side is if we don't do that, what happens is we cast each other out and we don't feel responsibility for each other. And then I don't care what happens to you or your health care plan or your you know rent control or your part of the land that we're going to dump whatever toxins onto because I don't live there. So... So for me, it's about feeling true responsibility for people I don't necessarily know and or like. That we 
get it that this is not a solo flight, that we are in this together and there's different levels of community. And I know it sounds cheesy and naive and that's fine. I've been accused of worse. Um, (laughs) That if we started with these kinds of communities, this kind of idea of community and living it and doing it, and then we related to the larger interfaith community in the Palisades, and then we related to other communities, if you had that happening everywhere in wider and wider circles, we would get it that we are one human family. We're one community. And and I don't know how else to, to stop the danger of disconnection and all that that causes, including cynicism and ennui and boredom and, and depression and isolation and loneliness that's crippling to the human soul. I, I don't know another way, you right, to, to, to stop what happens when we're not um, connected other than building communities like this. The two... Rabbis have spoken beautifully, I think, on community. Um, and I think the two words that came up for me as well were also uh, relationship as well as responsibility. Uh, the only other word I would put into the mix uh, is presence. It's a matter of being present with the people around you who aren't just your blood relatives or aren't just the people you would pick out to hang out with on a given moment or whatever, but it's not just being physically there, but actually being spiritually there and mentally there, giving of yourself, being fully present, and whether it's a celebration, something joyous, something wonderful, whether it's tragedy or something really dark, um, being present for not just the individual in front of you, but also for those in your life, those fellow travelers, those people who, with whom you share a journey. Um, so the only other piece of the puzzle I would add is presence. You know, there's, there's one of my favorite commandments in the Torah is the commandment that says when you see the animal of your enemy lying by the side of the road. This week's Torah portion, people. Come to Torah study. In this week's Torah portion. That you are commanded to help your enemy lift up his, in this case, animal. And the rabbi's commentary, one of their most obvious commentaries on that commandment of why you commanded to go help your enemy to do anything, is the idea that when you go to help your, give your, of yourself to help your enemy to raise up his animal, you transform your enemy from an enemy into a friend, into, and you are living out the ultimate connection of the human heart and what it means to be a human being. It's such a wonderful, it's just like one line in the Torah. My, that, my other favorite know. is, you shall love your neighbor as your own self. It doesn't say your friend. Right. It says the person you're sitting next to that you don't know that you don't necessarily like, that you don't agree with, that you don't care about, that you didn't pick, right? That that's right. who you should love as your whole self. That same idea that it's... And that's what community. Yeah. That, that's what community is about. So in closing, and we are so grateful that you are all here and present. Everyone's here. To we'll be here next week, same time. <laughs> during the- so in closing, um, are there any other pearls of wisdom that you would like to share? Yes, here's one from Mordecai Kaplan. He said, the background of an individual who relives his people's past and lives in anticipation of his people's future is infinitely vaster and fuller of human experiences than that of the individual whose horizon is limited to the immediate. And that also is to me about 
what it means to be a part of a community. Being bigger. That's perfect. Um, I just want to encourage all of us. Um, I think we live in a time, my biggest concern is that we live in a time that really denigrates the sacred and the mysterious and is all about answers and and measuring and the scientific is going it, to, you know, it's a scientism, you know, that it has all the answers. Uh, and if it's not explained by science, then it isn't real or it isn't important and it doesn't matter. And um, I just want to really encourage um, us and to encourage young people to open to the incredible importance of living a spiritually mature and responsible life proudly as human beings, you know, as we say, we're not human beings, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And um, to really take that part of ourselves seriously right now in our day and age is a, a really huge corrective that I feel like that, that we need. Um, just coming back to reconstructionism at the end, uh, as a theme, I, we had an assignment in rabbinical school, which is to explain what reconstructionism is in two minutes. The elevator speech. Yeah, the elevator speech. Um, and so, Slow elevator. Yes. I had a friend uh, who happened to be the son of one of our movement's great uh, mind, actually Rabbi Jacob Staub, who was here earlier in the year. I'm friends with his son, Andrew, and I thought, well, I'll ask him. He grew up with this stuff. I said, all right, so what does reconstructionism mean to you? You know, grew up with this. You were at the source. And he said, well... So I think it's two things, actually. I think it's the idea that religion changes and that that change is a really good thing and a beautiful thing. Wow, I can get on board with that project. Um, And that sort of takes me to uh, the last time I was talking about reconstructionism with some folks. I have a a student who is actually exploring conversion to Judaism right now who came to one of our sessions, and folks were talking about... uh, we were talking about what, what are you obligated to in progressive Judaism, if not Jewish law, you know, if it's not about the legal system, what are you obligated to? And folks talked about, you know, continuing the Jewish line and the Jewish people and all of that. Um, and this student of mine said, well, I think it's also about what is the project going forward? And it's about not just continuing what was, but actively sinking ourselves into the uh, endeavor of what does it mean to be Jewish in the next hundred years, the next 500 years, and being part of that conversation, being present for it, and being uh, really sinking your own soul into it. And I thought that was perfect. That was beautiful. Um, Love that. So I was going to say, I, I got nothing else to say about Reconstructionism. <laughs> Thank you so much for being in community with us tonight. Thank you all for coming.